Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 56 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Knights Templar. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. 900 years ago, a band of knights formed an unusual order of monks, one that would both pray and fight. They were based in what they called the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem, and so they became known as the Knights Templar. For two centuries, they did their best to defend Christians in the Holy Land. They also got rich. And then came their downfall, with shocking confessions made under torture to even more shocking crimes. The Pope ordered them disbanded, and some were burned at the stake. But today, many people claim they never really went away. Are the Knights Templar still pulling strings in the shadows? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, as we sometimes do, we we have a disclaimer we want to give at the top of the episode. So what what is the disclaimer? This episode involves French names, (laughs) and French is a language I haven't had a chance to study yet. I'm going to do the best I can, but I'm likely to mispronounce a few. So mea culpa, mea culpa, mea minima culpa. (laughs) Uh, I want to make sure. Did I say Knights Templar correctly? Is that how you how you say it? Knights Knights Templar. The other organization or another organization we're going to mention this episode is the Knights Hospitaller. Mm. And I have always, based on reading it, assumed it was Knights Hospitaller. But no, it's actually Knights Hospitaller. (laughs) Okay, that's that is something I never knew. So that's I'm glad to have that corrected. So. Let's start at the beginning. When were the Knights Templar active? Between about 1119 and 1312. So just under two centuries. And so how did they begin? What's their background? They grew out of the First Crusade. The Turks were in the process of conquering the Byzantine Empire, which was Christian. The Turks were Muslim at this time. And uh, the Patriarch of Constantinople, Nicholas III, appealed to Pope Urban II for military help because the Christians in Europe were the only ones left, so to speak. And Urban then called on the nobles and knights of Europe to take a vow to go to the East and liberate the Byzantines. And he also encouraged them to liberate the Holy Land, which had only recently, fairly recently, fallen under Muslim control. So between 1095 and 1099, they did so. Uh, They had the First Crusade. They uh, reclaimed the parts of the Byzantine Empire that had just been conquered and gave them back to the Byzantine Emperor, Alexius I. They also were able to reclaim a good bit of territory in the Holy Land and formed what were known as the Crusader States. There were like four of them, but one of them and the one that's most relevant for us is called the Kingdom of Jerusalem. So there was actually a new line of Christian kings of Jerusalem that began as a result of the First Crusade. So how did the Templars themselves begin? 
Well, now that the Holy Land was liberated, lots of Christians began coming to Jerusalem and other holy places on pilgrimages. But it was still a very unsafe place. Christians only controlled the cities, really. And if you had to travel between them, you needed to go under military guard to protect you from uh, brigands and Muslim ambushes and things like that. Around 1119, one of the knights who had come from France in the First Crusade uh, was a man named Hugh de Payen, or Hugh de Paynes as it's spelled, but Hugh de Payen, I assume, Payen. Uh, he and eight other knights decided that they wanted to consecrate themselves uh, to the service of God for the rest of their lives. And since they're not monks, they're not literate, they don't can't do the monk thing, really, but they are knights. And so they want to serve God by protecting Christians in the Holy Land, uh, like all the new pilgrims that are coming. And so instead of going back to France, now that they'd fulfilled their crusader vow, they took a new vow to protect Christian pilgrims, and Hugh de Payne became the first Grand Master of the Order. Uh, because a lot of these guys were second sons and didn't have you know, lands to go back to and that sort of thing, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. So how did they become known as the Knights Templar? Well, around 1119, they approached the Christian king of Jerusalem at the time, who was Baldwin II. Baldwin I had reigned previously. Now Baldwin II was on the throne, and they asked for his approval. And he not only gave them approval, he gave them living space. He gave them a house. And this house was located on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, where King Solomon's temple had stood centuries before. And at this point, there's something a little confusing. According to some accounts, they apparently thought that the building he gave them was Solomon's temple. But it's not really clear to me that that's the case. I've seen other accounts that said, well, no, they believed it to be on the ruins of Solomon's temple or maybe it's part of Solomon's temple or something, because everybody knows, if you know your Bible, Solomon's temple got, uh, you know, kind of destroyed by the Babylonians, like more than 500 BC. And then Herod's temple got destroyed in 70 AD. So yeah, that's the temple mount, but none of the buildings there are technically Solomon's temple. So they may have been misinformed, or they may have thought, oh, it's on the ruins of the temple, or they may have thought it's a surviving part of the temple, because like the Western Wall is a surviving part of Herod's temple. They might have thought, okay, well, this is a surviving part of Solomon's temple. And but in any event, they called the building they were given the Temple of Solomon. And so they thus became known as the Order of the Temple of Solomon or the Knights Templar. Templar Temple. Right. So was this building he gave them Solomon's temple? What was it? No, it's what we today know as the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Now, if you go to the Temple Mount today, you're going to find several things there. One of them is the Western Wall, or also known as the Wailing Wall, which is part of Herod's temple that survived. It's where Jews go to pray and stick uh, paper in the cracks in the walls, prayer requests. Uh, but then up on top of the platform, you have, which is also built by Herod, you will have these two buildings. One of them is the more famous because it's the more picturesque. It's called the Dome of the Rock. It's octagonal. It has this kind of golden kind of onion-shaped roof on top of it. It's one of the most 
famous things in Jerusalem. You'll see the Dome of the Rock all the time. That is not the Al-Aqsa Mosque. That's the Dome of the Rock. The Al-Aqsa Mosque is off to one side, and it's more of a kind of boxy-looking structure. It doesn't have the ornate roof, and it's not an octagon. And it was built by Muslims a little before the year 700. Right. And then, but then when uh, Christians conquered Jerusalem, yeah. taking it back, they took right. it over. It, it initially became a palace for Baldwin I, and then it was given to the Knights Templar. How did the Knights Templar do? Were they successful as a military order? Not at first. Initially, they didn't get a lot of recruits. Uh, in the first decade of their existence, they had like 10 to 12 guys. And that's it. They also didn't have hardly any money and they could not afford horses, which is a big thing. If you're a knight, you need a horse. So what they would actually have to do is when they would like go out to protect people, often two knights would have to ride on one horse. That's how poor they were. And if you look on their seal, they act, it actually shows two knights on a single horse to commemorate this early impoverished period in their history. So then they obviously their fortunes turned around. How did that happen? Bernard of Clairvaux, the famous St. Bernard, became an advocate of them. He was like super megazord popular in his own time. And so his support for the order really turned things around. In 1129, they got approved as an order by the Council of Troyes, uh, or Troyes is spelled, but I believe it's just Troy. Money and recruits started to pour in from Europe, and in and their fortunes further improved. A decade later, in 1139, Pope Innocent II declared them an exempt order. That meant that local nobles and local bishops could not interfere with them. They had free right of travel. They didn't have to pay taxes, and they were answerable only to the Pope. Uh, this is something like the way a personal prelature works today. So it can exist in other people's territories, but its response, its chain of accountability is directly to the Pope. Uh, and I'm betting the didn't have to pay taxes was a big element in their oh, future yeah. fortunes. So what happened in their later history then? Well, there's a lot of really fascinating history, and I wish we had time to go into more of it. Uh, but since we don't, I'm going to recommend an audio course in the Modern Scholar series by Professor Thomas Madden. It's called The Lost Warriors of God, and it's very good. Uh, so we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Suffice it to say, in the East, the Templars continued to play an important role in the subsequent Crusades. And because they were based there in the East, they knew the lay of the land. They were very good at their jobs. And as locals, they were often much better informed about battle situations than the European Crusaders who were visiting the land to fulfill their vows. And at a number of points in the later Crusades, it's thought that things would have gone better if the visiting nobles had listened to the Templars instead of doing what they wanted to do. And it's like, these are the local experts. You kind of want to take them seriously, guys, when they say, don't try that, do this other thing instead. Meanwhile, in the West, the Templars opened houses in countries all over Europe. This is kind of similar. So actually, most Templars were not in the Holy Land. They were in Europe. And this is similar to the way armies work today. Uh, armies need em enormous support staffs, and comparatively few people are actually deployed in the field at any one time. That's the way the American military is today. Not many people are overseas. Most people, and even during wartime, 
most American service personnel are still here at home getting stuff ready for the guys in the field. So the Templar houses in Europe performed functions like recruiting and fundraising. You know, those are also functions the U.S. military performs in the homeland. I remember growing up in the local mall in my hometown, the Army had a recruiting shop or whatever station, whatever it's called, where there would be these guys you'd see in there who would recruit young people right out of high school or whatever. Also, every year you got fundraising going on. The generals go up to Congress and tell them why they need money for this and that. And so same kind of stuff was happening in Europe to support the Templars. And it was the fundraising function that led them into an interesting situation because there were almost no international institutions at this time. The Knights Templars have been called by some the first truly international corporation. They There was no international banking system at this time, but the Templars made it a really important point never to misappropriate anything that had been given to them in trust. And as a result, they gained a reputation for being really trustworthy. And that led to them becoming a kind of unofficial banking system. Because what could happen is, let's say you're traveling, maybe to the Holy Land, maybe somewhere else in Europe, but you could, you don't want to bring money with you because, you know, bandits, right? (laughs) And so um, what you could do is go to a Templar house in your area and give them money, and then they would write you a receipt for it. And you took the receipt with you. And then when you got to your destination, you could go to another Templar house and give them the receipt and they would give you the money that you had deposited at this other Templar house. And so it's like a traveler's check. This is how this kind of thing started happening. And uh, also, you know, anytime it's known that someone has a lot of money, people are going to start hitting them up for loans. And that happened with the Templars because they were so successful in fundraising. Nobility, like kings in Europe, would start to hit the Templars up for loans, Uh, sometimes very big loans that the kings would have difficulty paying back. And so even though they're this military order that's devoted to protecting pilgrims, because of happenstance and historical circumstance, these guys have become an unofficial banking system that previously hadn't existed in Europe. So what then led to the downfall of the Templars? There were uh, two factors, one in the East and one in the West. In the East, the Crusades after the first one did not go especially well. I mean, some of them were better than others, but on balance, Christians progressively lost territory. And by 1291, so this is a little under 200 years after the foundation of the Templars, about almost exactly 200 years after the First Crusade, the last major stronghold, uh, which is a city called Acre, A-C-R-E, Acre in northern Israel, finally fell. Uh, So all of the other Jerusalem is gone. Everything else has been reclaimed by Muslims. And the Muslims this time, because they've seen Christians come and go. You know, they've they've seen them. Okay, we won this battle and they retreated, but then more of them came from Europe and the Muslims wanted to stop that. And so now they wanted to, like, just raise everything that was Christian so that the Christians couldn't come back and use their prior facilities as as a support base. And it would disincentivize further crusades. So they want to 
at Ocker, they don't just want to conquer Ocker, they want to raise it to the ground. And so at the siege of Ocker, Muslim forces broke into the city, which threw everyone inside into a panic. Civilians did their best to get to the harbor because there were ships in the harbor that could leave. And law of supply and demand, suddenly there's a lot more demand for the seats on those ships. So naturally, they have a price spike and people are like bidding to get seats on the ships so they can escape from the Muslim forces. Uh, The Templars are simultaneously, they're not trying to leave. They're trying to protect people. So they're simultaneously trying to help civilians get down to the ships and push back the Muslim onslaught from all the Muslims who have come into the city. Eventually, they had to take refuge in their own Templar house in Acre, which is basically a fortress. Uh, These Templar houses in the Middle East, some of them were very, very big fortresses and very difficult to conquer. So that's what ended up happening. They, they, when they couldn't keep getting people to the docks and they couldn't keep pushing back the Muslims, they said, let's get as many of these people, as we, civilians as we can, and bring them into our house, which is a fortress, and we'll do our best to protect them there. So at, at this point, the Muslims have a problem because they want to raise this city. But it's got this big fortress in the middle of it with the Templars in it. And the Templars, I mean, they want to raise that fortress, too, but they can't do that with the Templars in there. And the Templars, you know, could make things problematic for them if they start trying to raise the rest of the city. And so they decide to do something interesting. They decide, let's negotiate because the the Templars realize their their cause is hopeless at this point. We're, they're not pushing us out of the city. This city is, is doomed. It's just a question of how is that going to play out? What the Templars want is to get these civilians out, and they want to do their job of protecting these Christian civilians. So let's let them, let's make a deal. Let's let them take the civilians and give them safe passage to the island of Cyprus. So we're going to let them go down to the harbor, let them get in a boat and sail off to Cyprus. And if they do that and they leave their house, we can get on with our business. We get what they want. They get what they want. Everything's good for everybody. And so the they make this offer and the Templars think about it and agree. So they're going to do their best to get these civilians out, even though it means losing Acker. And then as the exchange is happening... So they let some Muslims into the castle to oversee, you know, the filing out of the civilians. They notice that the Muslims are counting the women and children and stuff, which is a sign the Muslims are not going to honor their deal. They're going to sell these people into slavery. Mm. And so the uh, Templars immediately renege on the deal. Fighting breaks out to protect the civilians from being sold into slavery, and the negotiations break down, and there are no further negotiations. Neither side trusts the other enough to do anything. So Muslims uh, start using sappers to dig underneath the Templar house. Sappers are military engineers that armies all over the world use. They perform a variety of functions, but one of the things they do is dig tunnels to literally mine under or undermine fortresses. Mm -hmm. And a few days later, so the sappers are doing their thing. And a few days later, uh, 200 Muslims also break into the fortress 
topside. But the sappers have done such a good job undermining the Templar house that it collapses and kills everybody, Templars and Muslims alike. So the Templars at Acre gave their lives trying to defend Christian refugees in the Holy Land. And since Muslims raised the city, their bodies are still there in the ruins, along with their Muslim attackers, and modern Mm. archaeologists have been investigating it. In any event, the collapse of the loss of Acre and the collapse of the Crusader states led to a question about, well, should the Knights Templar actually continue as a military order? I mean, their function is to protect pilgrims in the Holy Land, but (laughs) there are no pilgrimages to the Holy Land right now. And so some people started asking whether they should be merged with another military order that had been based in Jerusalem, the Knights Hospitaller. And the Hospitallers, they're called what they were because they had a hospital in Jerusalem. It's called the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem. And their charism involved caring for the sick and the poor and for injured pilgrims who had been coming to the Holy Land. And that was especially uh, important because many pilgrims came to the Holy Land sick. They were sick or they were dying, and they they just wanted to come to Jerusalem to spend out their last days where Jesus walked. And so you had a lot of sick people coming to Jerusalem to die where Jesus lived and to be buried right there, and so that that's where they'd be in the resurrection. The knights of the hospital took care of them, but they also needed to be knights because these people need protection. And so the knights hospitaller also were a military order, um, but they had more of like a medical charitable mission, and the military function was kind of an auxiliary thing they did, whereas with the Templars, the military thing was the key thing they did, but then they also had the banking thing kind of on the side. In any event, Pope Clement V, now that the Crusader states are gone, Pope Clement V uh, told both the head of the Templars, who was at this time a guy named Jacques de Molay, and the head of the Hospitallers to give him some briefing papers. He said, you know, tell me your opinion about the possibility of merging these two orders. What are the pros and the cons of that? And the Jacques de Molay wrote back and he acknowledged both pros and cons, but ultimately he didn't think merging the orders was a good idea. The Hospitallers always had charitable works as their primary charism, and so that was always going to take first place for them, whereas for the Templars, the military thing was their primary charism. And he also wanted Christians to go back to the Holy Land and reclaim it. There were all kinds of plots, most of them really unrealistic about, here's how we're going to go back and retake all that stuff. But Jacques de Molay's plan to go back to the Holy Land ended up collapsing because of a problem for the Templars that was brewing in the West. Right. So, yeah, that was the East. So what was this problem in the West then? The current king of France was a guy named Philip IV. Uh, He was a grandson of uh, Louis IX, the famous St. Louis Ray, St. Louis the King. And he was often called Philip the Fair, but Philip the Unfair might be better. (laughs) Philip was in, like a lot of European kings, he was in desperate need of money all the time to pay for his wars and his extravagant lifestyle. And Philip was in such dire straits, he had basically exhausted all the legitimate ways of getting money in France. So he started turning to illegitimate ways. In the late 1200s, he taxed the French clergy 
half of their annual income. Now, taxing the clergy was illegal to begin with, and certainly taxing them half of their income is is illegal. So that led him into a conflict with the Pope, who at the time was a guy named Boniface VIII. And this conflict resulted in Boniface VIII releasing a famous bull in 1302 called Unum Sanctum, which is famous for a variety of reasons, but it really grew out of his conflict with Philip the with Philip the Fair. Philip retaliated by sending a group of his agents to arrest the Pope, but the Pope got away. Also, and Philip had never met the Pope, but he started making extravagant charges against the Pope, including charges of heresy, sodomy, witchcraft, and keeping a private demon as the Pope's personal counselor, and he did whatever the demon said. It's a bad uh, choice as a counselor, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, he, you know, he was getting money from the French clergy illegally. Then in 1291 and 1311, he arrested and confiscated the wealth of all the Italian bankers in France. In 1306, he also got money by expelling Jewish people from France. I mean, like all of them. And so he got to confiscate their wealth. And that also meant he got to cancel the large loans that Jewish moneylenders had given him. So part of his debt problem goes away. And he had his own agents take over their businesses to try to collect on loans they had made on other pe- to other people. So even though he wasn't the original loaner, his agents were collecting repayment from other people, and now all of that money was going to the crown. And to justify all this, he also made extravagant charges against the Jews, including desecrating the Eucharist. So then, that's 1306, the next year, he moves against the Templars. He ordered the arrest of the Grand Master Jacques de Molay, along with other French Templar leaders, and later all of the uh, Templars in France. Sometimes you'll hear people erroneously say that he ordered the arrest of all the Templars in Europe. No, he's just the king of France. He's not the king of Europe. So he did that, and he owed them lots and lots of money. Because remember, they're the international banking system. They're not just local Jewish bankers or Italian bankers who've come over here. They are the pan-European banking system. And they have made loans to him that he's had trouble repaying, and so he wants those canceled. He also wants to acquire the wealth that they had. And so, guess what? He makes surprising, extravagant charges against them, too, just like he did against the Pope, just like he did against the Jews. He says the Templars have been conducting heretical initiation ceremonies. Whenever they make you a member of their order, you have to deny Christ, you have to spit on a crucifix, You have to strip naked and be kissed on the base of the spine, the navel, and the lips. Why those body parts, I don't know. And you have to worship an idol, which originally appears to have been said to have been some kind of like a head that was used as an idol. I don't know if it's an artificial head or what. And also charges of ritualized homosexual activity. So he's accusing them of all that stuff to justify what he's doing to them in France. Howdy folks, this is Jimmy Aiken. Mysterious World is part of the StarQuest podcast network, and we need your help. Over the past year, StarQuest has grown by leaps and bounds. Every month we produce dozens of shows on numerous topics, and all of them explore the intersection of faith and pop culture. 
Some, like Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, are among the most popular shows StarQuest has ever produced in its 13-year history. And our newest shows, like American Catholic History, are catching fire with new audiences. We're fulfilling our mission of evangelization in a whole new way, but that success is in danger. We must reach the financial break-even point if we're going to continue. Creating, editing, and distributing a dozen shows has caused our expenses to rise, and right now, we aren't making ends meet. We're rapidly running through our reserves, and soon they'll be gone. If that happens, we'll have to cut back many of our shows, and we might have to shut down altogether. That's why it's crucial we hear from you right now. If you haven't yet become a supporter, please do so. If you are a supporter, please prayerfully consider increasing your support. Just visit sqpn.com give and click the Become a Patron button to make your monthly pledge, or click the Donate button to give a one-time gift. You can do it right now while you're listening. When you become a patron, you'll have access to exclusive member benefits and several special thank you gifts for supporting StarQuest at different levels. The need is urgent, so please go today to sqpn.com give. Thank you from all of us at StarQuest, and may God bless you. May we hear from you today? So this seems to be a good time to talk about the different theories about the Templars then. What, what theories have been proposed uh, about the Knights Templar? They fall into two categories. The theories that were around in their own time, and then the theories that have emerged since. In their own time, they did have critics. Uh, I mean, not everybody was on board with this military order concept. You know, this was very uncomfortable to a lot of churchmen. It's like, no, no, no. We have three classes in our society. We have the nobles who fight. We have the clergy who pray. And we have the uh, workers who grow all the food. So we have a religious caste, a warrior caste, and a worker caste. They build, you pray, we fight. You're not supposed to merge the castes. This is a thing on Babylon 5, by the way. So not everybody is like, what do you mean a monk can fight? I mean, he's supposed to pray. That doesn't make any sense. And how can a knight be a monk? I mean, they're all illiterate. They can't say the Psalter. They're just riding around saying our fathers because that's all they know. So they did have critics. One charge, which we really haven't mentioned, as the Crusades started going badly, as Christians were losing territory, there was a, an argument or a rumor going around in Europe saying that the Templars really didn't want to win because then they'd be out of a job. You know, and and you often hear claims like this when someone's trying to address a problem in a world. If in the world, if they encounter problems, it's it often will get blamed on the person trying to solve it is you must not really want to solve this because then you'd be out of a job. Also, as if, you know, Muslims were just going to leave the Holy Land alone. Right. <laughs> right. Also, they were sometimes accused of dealing with Muslims to sabotage the crusade efforts and maintain the status quo. Then there were the charges that Philip IV made, basically that these guys aren't really Christians. Uh, they deny Christ and they're practicing a secret idolatrous religion while pretending to be Christians. What about the theories that, that have arisen since the order was suppressed? Basically, they all involve the idea that the order survived in some way and that there are still Templars around today. 
Uh, sometimes it will argue that they, they became or sort of became the Freemasonry movement. It's also commonly argued that they discovered something secret in the Temple of Solomon that they continue to guard. Sometimes the secret thing is said to be a great treasure, or like in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the Holy Grail. Other times, what they discovered is supposed to be something non-physical. In other words, it's secret knowledge, basically. One version of that, which was advocated by Freemasons, is, oh, they discovered records in the Temple of Solomon that contain liberal Enlightenment ideas, and like the ones the Masons pitched. Also, a recent claim they discovered genealogical records in the temple that showed that Jesus and Mary Magdalene married each other and had a family that gave rise to the Merovingian bloodline of European nobility, as described in the books Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and its plagiaristic novelization, The Da Vinci Code. <laughs> I was going to say, this sounds uh, all too uh, familiar uh, to those who've, who've heard of those or read those books. Yeah. So so let's let's look at the reason perspective. What about the idea that they didn't really want to win because they'd be out of a job? This charge is not well supported. Even if they had won, the Muslim threat simply was not going away anytime soon. There would be jobs protecting pilgrims for generations. They had no short term, oh, if we won all of this right now, we'd suddenly be out of a job. No, no, no. <laughs> this is going to go on for generations in the best case scenario. Christian control in the Middle East was just too tenuous, and it had been even after the First Crusade when things were successful. So if you needed the Templars then, you're going to need them if you have a new success, successful crusade. And the record shows that the Templars wanted to win. They knew the lay of the land better than the visiting nobles who were running the Crusades. They gave the Crusade leaders good advice, which was then ignored. And if the Templars had gotten their way, the Crusades would have gone better than they did. And notice how they like fought to the end, trying to protect the, the Christians in Acre, who were reduced to refugee status by that point. So what about this uh, secret religion charge that, from Philip IV? The scholarly consensus today is that it was all a setup, that the Templars were completely innocent and the charges were just made up. There is a question about whether Philip actually believed these charges. I mean, he had a history of making wild charges against people when he was after their money. He did it with Pope Boniface VIII, he did it with French Jewish people, and he did it with the Templars. And so you can kind of read that one of two ways. You could either say, okay, whenever he wants to get money from someone, he makes up these wild charges to justify it, and he doesn't really believe it. He knows this is all fake. Or you could say he's a conspiracy nut <laughs> and, and, he's, and he's got advisors who are feeding him this stuff to help justify what he wants to do anyway. And so it's not like we don't know. I mean, Catholic conspiracy nuts today. Now, <laughs> I got to point out on this show, you know, we cover a lot of conspiracies and conspiracies can be real. That's why we have laws against conspiracy. That's why conspiracy is a crime, because they really do exist. So I'm not dismissing conspiracy theories. I'm dismissing conspiracy nuts, people who don't think critically about conspiracies and just see them everywhere. 
Right. And it could be he was one of these guys. He was just the medieval version of that. So why why do modern scholars think that the Templars were innocent of the secret religion charge? There's several reasons, and one has to do with the way the investigation was conducted in France as opposed to other places. In France, they did get confessions, but here's how they got them. They arrested, you know, he arrested these temple officials, and the people he arrested were, at first were leaders, so they were all middle-aged or elderly men, and they were taken to different cells, tortured, and, th- and also told other people are already confessing, which is even a common police tactic today. People do, often do not realize police are not required to tell you the truth today here in America. They are not required to tell you the truth when they interrogate you. And so if you and your buddy are both being interrogated separately, which is the practice, they can tell you, hey, your buddy's already given you up. If you want to make a good deal, you better give us something else big on him. And that happens today. And that actually gets false confessions today because people are scared of what's going to happen to them. Uh, well, so guess what? They use these tactics in, in uh, France and that happens there. So what occurred was the original leaders who got arrested, many of them would confess to just enough of the charges to get the torture to stop. And they were then allowed to, quote unquote, repent of practicing this secret religion that they'd never even heard of and leave the order and get on with life. But of course, confessions obtained by torture have a very high false positive rate. In fact, police today get a lot of false confessions. I mean, don't get me wrong. Police do great work. They are vitally needed to maintain order and enforce justice in our society. Go police. But at the same time, sometimes they uh, use psychological pressure on people in a way that results in false confessions. And that's a problem. Well, if you're not just psychologically pressuring people, but physically torturing them, it's going to produce an even higher false confession rate. And that's what was going on in France. So uh, we we keep mentioning fr- the investigation in France, suppressed in France and Philip, but the order mm-hmm. was suppressed everywhere. So were people investigating the Templars in other lands too? Yeah. So initially, Pope Clement V was very, very upset about what Philip did because these guys are an exempt order. Local leaders like Philip are not allowed to interfere with them. They report to the Pope. So he's very mad about that. But then when the confessions start happening, it's like he can't just dismiss those. I mean, in part because, I mean, today you could say, well, they were gotten under torture and that would be a big strike. But at the time, torture was used by everybody. Civil courts, you know, it was a standard interrogation practice. And so you didn't dismiss a confession just because torture was involved. And so he thought, well, maybe there's something to this. So he eventually ordered out, ordered that all Templars in Europe needed to be investigated. So they were arrested and the Inquisition, since these were charges of heresy, the proper institution and the experts in investigating such charges were the Inquisition. So that's who investigated this everywhere else, whereas in France, it was the king's men who were doing it everywhere else, the pros, the uh, Inquisition got to look into it, except at, at least initially there were a few places where kings just refused to go along with this. The Templars had a great reputation. In England, the king refused to arrest him, and so did uh, the king of Aragon in uh, Spain. Initially, this didn't apply to everybody, although eventually uh, investigations did happen. 
The Inquisition got involved in 310, and despite its modern reputation, the Inquisition actually was a serious law court that existed that required evidence. You couldn't just go in and say, he turned me into a newt. Right. They're going to say, <laughs> okay, what's the evidence that you're a newt? I got better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so uh, they actually were very professional about this, in, in certainly in most places. And it's only in France that any Templars were found guilty of the secret religion accusation. In England and Aragon, where torture was illegal, they had no convictions. And in Germany and Italy, where they had proper Inquisition hearings, they had no conviction. It's only in France. And even in France, a third of the Templars refused to confess to anything, even under torture. So it's it's clearly it's just the strong arm tactics of the French government that's producing the confessions. It's not these people are actually guilty. That led to some further developments in France. After the investigations started in other lands, the confessions that Philip had obtained didn't stick. So you had these people, they'd repented of their alleged secret religion. They'd left the order. They were living in the world now. And now that there's actual serious investigation happening, it's like, I want to retract. I want a new <laughs> hearing. I, that was coerced. That was torture. And Philip quickly realizes exactly what's going to start happening if these guys get an actual hearing that looks at the evidence in an unbiased way. And so he rearrests all of the Templars, accusing them of being relapsed heretics. But if they appeal their decision, you're a relapsed heretic since you've taken back your confession of the heresy, and he burns 54 of them at the stake, including in 1314, he burned the last Grand Master of the Order, Jacques de Molay. But the fact it's only in France where this happens is one of the big reasons why modern scholars think that they, the Templars were just totally innocent of the false religion charge. Are there any other reasons why modern scholars uh, think they're innocent? Yeah. Um, one is stressed by Thomas Madden, the professor of the Lost Warriors of God course. Uh, he points out that this hasn't been fully explored enough by other scholars, but he makes a really good point. Basically, the confessions that the Templars gave aren't like the confessions of actual heretics. There were actual heretics in France. There was a group uh, known as the Cathars, for example, who had this weird religion kind of like Gnosticism, where they think there's more than one God and Jesus didn't really incarnate. They have some Christian beliefs, but but it's it's mixed up with all this other non-Christian stuff. And so what would happen is, and we have, you know, the records, because the Inquisition kept records, when you'd have someone brought in and accused of being a Cathar, what would happen? Well, they, the Cathars would do everything they could to evade the Inquisitor's questions. They didn't simply confess. They would stress common ground. They'd say, oh, you believe in God. We believe in God. You believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus. And then, okay, yeah, but do you think there's more than one God? And do you think Jesus didn't become a man? Then they would evade and they'd try to talk about other subjects. So let's talk about this other thing. 
you know, let's celebrate what we have in common as Christians and not look at the other stuff. So they would dodge questions about their heretical beliefs. And this is because they wanted to avoid two things. They wanted to avoid being convicted of heresy and they wanted to avoid having to renounce their faith. They wanted to get out of this interrogation system and be able to go on continually continuing to practice their secret religion. So what happens when they get convicted? Well, if they don't renounce their religion, they're going to be executed. And at that point, there's no further threat hanging over them. I mean, they're going to die. Their future can't get worse than you're going to die. So at that point, they have no incentive to hide their religion. And they start loudly announcing it, saying, I'm a Cathar and I'm a martyr for my faith. And I'm being persecuted by this evil church and stuff like that. So that's what happens with an actual heretic in this situation back in the Middle Ages. But it's not what happened with the Templars. The Templars did not try to evade questions uh, about their allegedly heretical beliefs. They either denied them outright and said, no, of course I don't believe that. Or they would, under torture, they'd confess and say, "Uh, yeah, okay, I'll confess. But they didn't try to evade so that they could go on secretly practicing this religion. And when they were convicted and taken to be executed, okay, now there's no further downside for them if they want to announce their secret religion. You know, they're just, they're going to die one way or another. This is the time to say, I'm a martyr. I secretly love this weird head idol and and I deny Christ. That's the time to say that, and none of them, none at all, did. All of the ones who were executed went to their deaths protesting their innocence, proclaiming their love for Christ, and declaring their loyalty to the church. So this was not a bunch of heretics. This was a bunch of people who were innocent, and the order was busted up on bogus charges to get Philip money. So what about the theory that they've they survived in some form after the suppression? Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, Wait a minute. (laughs) How is this true? How did they survive? Well, it's true, but it's true only in a sense. In 1312, Pope Clement V suppressed the order, not because he thought they were guilty, but because their reputation had been so damaged by Philip's rumors that the Pope made a prudential judgment that, guys, it's better to cut bait rather than keep trying to fish on this one. Your brand is too ruined at this point. You don't have the function of protecting pilgrims in the East. And now here in the West, you have this major scandal, even though you're innocent, it's better to do something else. And so he suppressed the order. Many of the former Knights Templar joined the Hospitallers. And so there did end up being a sort of merger between the Templars and the Hospitallers, but not all of them did. The Templar Order in Portugal changed its name because their their brand as the Templars was damaged, but they came up with a new brand. They became the Order of Christ. And so they still exist today, and their grandmaster is the president of the Portuguese Republic. So one branch of the Templars actually did survive, the Portuguese branch. So is the president of the Portuguese Republic grandmaster by by virtue of by his office? office. Okay. Yeah. It's not that he just happens to be. Okay. Right. So one branch of the Templars continues to exist today. Did another branch survive as the Freemasons, as some claim? 
nah. But it's because of Freemasonry that all these later rumors got started. Basically, after the Templars' downfall, people forgot about them. You know, they were in history books, but most people were getting on with life and working the farm and not reading history books, often because they were illiterate. And so memories of the Templars kind of faded after the 1300s, and nobody thought that much about them until the 1700s. What happened in the 1700s, Freemasonry got started. Freemasonry had gotten started in Great Britain, and it created a mythical past for itself because, like lots of people, they want to sound older than they are. Oh, we have this mysterious ancient heritage. For the Freemasons, they claimed to go all the way back to Solomon's Temple because they're Masons, right? So Masons build things with stone like the pyramids and Solomon's temple. And so, oh, yeah, we Masons, we did that stuff. That was us. Yeah, uh-huh. Some of their ceremonies today, for example, involve a figure named Hiram Abif, or Hiram Biff, who they allege to have been the chief architect of the temple. And that actually seems to be based on a confusion of something that's in the Old Testament. Uh, the king, uh, if I recall correctly, of Tyre, King Hiram, contributed supplies for the temple, but there wasn't someone named Hiram Abif who was its chief architect under Solomon. Uh, in any event, they claimed this mythical past connecting themselves to the pyramids and the temple. And when Freemasonry spread to France, it got picked up by these French Enlightenment liberals who were opposed to the French aristocracy and the church. And since the Templars in France had been persecuted by the aristocracy, and arguably with the complicity of the church, French Freemasons decided to lay claim to their heritage. It's like, we're them now. We're against the aristocracy. We're against the church. And so the French Masons taught Enlightenment ideals like the abolition of social classes so that there wouldn't be a distinction anymore between commoners and the nobility. And so they said, well, that's what the temp that's what the Templars discovered in the Temple of Solomon when they were there. They found these ancient records and they preached the same enlightenment ideas that we're preaching. So we're actually giving you secret, mystic, enlightened knowledge from hundreds of years ago. Ain't that swell? Uh, how plausible is that? Uh, claim? Not at all. Um, <laughs> partly for reasons we'll see later on. But for the moment, suffice it to say, the Templars did not have radical Enlightenment ideals like getting rid of the distinction between nobility and commoners. In fact, to be a knight Templar, you had to be a nobleman. Knights were noblemen, and you had to be a knight already to join the order. They did not knight you once you joined. You were a knight who came in to join the order. If you were a commoner who joined the order... You did not get to become a knight. You could play a number of different roles. You could, for example, be a kind of a soldier known as a sergeant, but you could not be a knight. So the knight simply didn't have enlightenment ideals. And thus, according to and, you know, according to the historical record, the Masons just have no connection with the Templars and the Templars would have been horrified at the Masons anti-clerical and anti-monarchist and anti-nobility ideals. I mean, these were, you know, 
chivalrous knights from the Middle Ages who were defending the king of Jerusalem and working for the Pope and went to their deaths protesting how much they love the church. Uh, yes, like I've seen that with other other groups as well. Um, uh, sometimes like the uh, I, I used to live in Salem, Massachusetts, and there are modern day Wiccans who claim to be the descendants of uh, the victims of the witch trials who themselves were often just poor, illiterate Irish Catholics who were strung up for praying bad Latin prayers. Yeah. Uh, who would yeah. be horrified at that <laughs> claim. So Pater I, Noster quies in Chile. That's got to be a magical incantation. <laughs> exactly. So have other groups claimed to be survivors of the Templars? Yeah, there are a bunch, including ones that will even put the word Templar in their name. But the only actual survival is the Order of Christ in Portugal. So let's look at this claim that the Templars found something secret in the temple. What about this claim that they found the Holy Grail? (laughs) I love this one. Yeah. So uh, the so-called Temple of Solomon was actually the the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Yes. It was, as I mentioned, built just before 700 AD by Muslims. Are Muslims in 700 AD going to be housing the Holy Grail in a mosque? (laughs) Right. Or, you know, no, there, there is just no way that the Holy Grail would have been housed there either at the time or even before. Oh, and yes, we will be doing a future episode on the Holy Grail. Excellent. We will choose not choose poorly on that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what about the idea that they found a huge treasure in the Al-Aqsa Mosque? Uh, huge treasures are not customarily stored in mosques. They're houses of prayer, not treasuries. Also, any treasure that had been there would have been taken by the kings of Jerusalem, Baldwin I and Baldwin II, when they used the Al-Aqsa Mosque as a palace before the Templars moved in. Now, it's true the Templars did have a lot of money. They had a lot of treasure. But we know where it came from. Donations in Europe, not from the temple. It's from the donations all over Europe. You're going to get way more support from people in this international multi multi-country network supporting you than you're going to find in a single small building in one place. And we also know where all of their treasure went. It's gone. Much of it was absorbed by the Knights Hospitaller when the merger happened. And, and a lot of it into Phillips' pockets, too. <laughs> yeah, although some of that was actually returned to the to the was turned over to the hospitalers, but not till after Philip's death. He didn't give them anything. Interesting, interesting. I wonder who would give Philip loans after that. Uh, but that's another <laughs> topic. He, so, he died. Actually, he and the Pope both died like a year or something after Jacques de Molay was burned. Mm. And there's this legend. It's not really true, but there's this legend that as he was burning, Jacques de Molay cursed the the king and the pope because they did really die very quickly after he was burned <laughs> uh, another good story what about the idea that they found secret knowledge and records they found in the temple of solomon so muslims may have had some copies of the quran and other muslim texts in the al-aqsa mosque but nothing like what it's claimed the templars found also i don't know how many of the templars could read arabic i mean they couldn't even read latin Uh, That's why they had to say our fathers instead of reading the Psalter. Mm -hmm. But the idea that French Enlightenment ideas are going to like getting rid of the nobility are are, and not having slaves are going to be found in Muslim records in in the temple at this time. That's just nuts. Muslims had slaves. <laughs> right. They had very clear social caste. They that's why the negotiation at Acre fell apart 
because the Christians realized that the Muslims were preparing to sell the refugees into slavery. So the idea that you're going to find French Enlightenment ideas in the temple in the Al-Aqsa Mosque is nonsense. Also nonsense is the idea that Muslims would have genealogical records showing that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married and had a family that led to a bloodline of European kings. You know, Muslims couldn't be less interested in that kind of thing. And so all these secret knowledge claims are simply bogus. Now, would would any of the theories include not Muslim records, mm-hmm. but but perhaps like because the Temple Mount predates the Al-Aqsa right. Mosque, that they did that the, they found older records, some like in a secret cavern or something. I mean, is that well, you can propose that, but we've actually looked in the cavern. And now they're currently we don't have good access to them because the political situation is too explosive. Right. But earlier in the 20th century, scholars did go down into those places underneath the Temple Mount. And there are caverns down there. I've even been in a little bitty one. If you go to the Dome of the Rock on the uh, in the rock itself, uh, which is held to be or thought to be the threshing floor of Aruna that David bought. It's also thought to be other things. That's debated. But it's clearly an important place. And you go to the center of the rock, there's a hole right there into a little underground cavern called the Well of Souls. And in the old days, you could go down in that. And I've actually been down in that. But these days, the situation is too tense. And so nobody's getting in there and nobody's getting in the other underground chambers for various political reasons. But when we had a look at them, we didn't find things like that. There aren't records down there. And furthermore, those caverns are wet. There is underground water there. And over 2,000 years or even 1,000, records will disintegrate in a moist environment. That's why we find so much of the archaeological literary evidence in Egypt where it's dry. That's why we don't find 2,000-year-old scrolls in Europe, because it is too wet. And so the, the humidity in the underground caverns, and there's like, there's like a lake or river down there. I've seen illustrations of it that were made when people did have access to it. It's like, they're not just moist, they're filled up with water. The humidity level is just way too much to allow records to survive over the 1,100 years between the destruction of the temple and the founding of the Templars. Okay. All right. So that's a, that's a, a good explanation there then. So that's the, re- that's the reason perspective. Uh, since the Knights Templar were a, re- a religious military order, it seems fitting we close with the faith perspective. So what can we say about the Templars from a faith perspective? The evidence indicates that they were sincere Catholics who really wanted to serve God by consecrating themselves to protect Christian pilgrims in the Holy Land. Like everyone else, they weren't perfect, but they wanted to do what they could to serve God, and they got a really raw deal. So, Jimmy, what is your bottom line on this? Uh, that sounds like the bottom line there. Yeah, pretty pretty close, yeah. The bottom line, there were a bunch of devout men who wanted to do good, but they suffered at the hands of the greedy king of France. At their downfall, they were viciously lied about, and they continue to be lied about today by people who want to misappropriate their heritage and turn them into symbols of something they would have abhorred. Okay. All right. So if people want to go deeper on this, what further resources can you offer? Well, we'll have a link to Professor Thomas Madden's audio course, The Lost Warriors of God. I highly recommend it. It's really good. You know, like anything, there are a few things here and there that I would 
I would revise, but it's really good. Also, we'll have links uh, from Wikipedia to the Knights Templar, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Knights Hospitaller, the Crusader States, the Siege of Acre, Philip IV of France, and Freemasonry. I got to say, I, I also recommend, I've, I've read an, a book by Professor Madden on the Crusades themselves, uh-huh. which was yeah. good too. So the, 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 the look at some of his other stuff is, is good on that, that historical era. Excellent. One one thing I appreciate about him is he's not trying to be politically correct or incorrect. He's just here are the facts. Here's what they did. They were loyal to the Pope. They sought, fought this crusade. And he's not trying to critique it from some modern perspective. That's right. That's right. All right. So let's uh, talk some about our mysterious feedback we've got from uh, our listeners, from our audience. And we we love to get this from you. And the feedback this week is all on our Roswell episode. And uh, one of our patrons, Joel. Uh, writes and says, uh, sometimes I sit with an adult beverage and take a drink whenever Jimmy says we'll cover that in a future episode. I'm glad I didn't for this one. Jimmy would have killed me. <laughs> yeah. I also highly suggest you do not play. I didn't know there was a mysterious world drinking game, but I highly suggest you do not play it if you ever listen to one of our patrons questions episodes, because <laughs> one of the things the patrons do is suggest a lot of topics for future episodes. Yes, yes. The, alcohol poisoning would be on the on the on the board for that one. So don't do that. Uh, Rick on Facebook writes, I've been waiting for this episode and was hoping you'd be able to prove it was aliens. I've been 99.9% sure that what was found was from Project Mogul, but deep down held out hope for Little Green Men. Yeah, well, I can't rule out Little Green Men, but the evidence seems to point to Project Mogul. Although we will be covering other aspects of the story in the future. The first one was just an overview with a basic conclusion, but we will be digging down into some of the other claims and the evidence for them. And maybe there are some other UFO uh, stories and incidents and mysteries where there will be the little green men. So hold out hope. Maybe. <laughs> uh, I Kung Fu U2 on YouTube writes, one of my favorite UFO stories. I was corresponding with Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr., a very nice guy. And Jesse answered a handful of my questions and gave me his personal mailing address because he agreed to sign, autograph a book he co-authored. Sadly, he passed two weeks later. Thanks again, you guys. Yet another awesome episode. That's really cool for people who may not be aware. Uh, Jesse Marcel Sr. was a military officer at uh, the Army Air Force Base at Roswell who handled some of the debris and he took it home and so and showed it to his family. And so his son, Jesse Marcel Jr., who later became a doctor, was one of the few living people who had handled the wreckage after the story really got big. Uh, and then uh, we received an email from Stephen who says, I've lived in Midland, Texas for the past 40 years. And because Roswell is kind of a sister city in new, nearby New Mexico, I've gained some knowledge about Roswell that may be less well known by most Americans. The Air Force base at Roswell was decommissioned many years ago, but during the height of the Cold War, it was home base for part of the B-52 Armada. Most of your listeners will be aware, as well as Dr. Strangelove aficionados, that at that time, the B-52s were armed with nuclear warheads. A friend of mine who was raised in Roswell was about 10 years old on the day of the Cuban Missile Crisis. He said that by far the loudest noise he has ever heard was the B-52s scrambling on that day. You mentioned that there's an alien museum in Roswell. I once chaperoned a youth group ski trip. Uh, Travel to Sierra Blanca required us to pass through Roswell, and on the return, we stopped at the alien museum. I was less than impressed. But did you know that there is also a museum in Roswell that holds Robert Gardner's experimental rockets 
this is way more cool than a poorly reconstructed corpse of what some people think an alien looks like. I didn't know that there was a a museum there with Goddard's rockets. I'll have to look for that next time I'm there. I've also been to the Alien Museum or the Extraterrestrial Museum there, and it is kind of obvious they're doing this on sort of a shoestring budget. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And speaking of Robert Goddard, he is a native of uh, Massachusetts. I just want to point that out. And uh, There is a a museum in central Massachusetts somewhere, and I forget where it is now, but uh, that makes me want to go see it. Uh, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, true rockets. Uh, he's the he's the father of modern rocketry. Uh, yeah, if, if in case you don't know, so he's an important figure in history. So that's our f- mysterious feedback. Thank you, everyone. Uh, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? The first one is a is an article on and how the so you may hear in the climate debate about the IPCC. That's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And there is a new article out challenging them to correct the media's overheated 12-year doomsday warning. Get it? Overheated? Uh Because they put out this report a while back, the IPCC did, uh, back in um, 2018, so last year, saying that by 2030, the following temperature increase is going to happen. And it got picked up by the press as, we've got 12 years to save the planet. And that's not what they even said. So there's like, guys, come on, tell the press to knock it off with the doomsday stuff. And there's this issue of will they actually be responsible enough to correct mispresentations of their own story? Or are they happy to have the press go running around screaming with their hands in the air that the sky is falling for their own reasons? Some of our politicians in Washington have picked up that uh overheated rhetoric as well yeah they've even (laughs) radically truncated it so it's not like 12 years it's like 14 months or something which is (laughs) even okay guys you're off by like a factor of 10 yeah at that point there's nothing we can do we might as well just live with it (laughs) yeah yeah i i i I saw a headline uh this was meant satirically but in light of one of our american political leaders we've only got this number of months someone uh headlined that with time something like time to start smoking and having lots of free sex again (laughs) right (laughs) so what's our other headline this week it's a thoughtful critique of mindfulness get it Hmm. thoughtful critique yeah got that one too um yeah um (laughs) this essay was written by a i mean we hear all about this mindfulness stuff and I haven't had a chance to do it on the show yet but you hear it being touted as this cure-all for everything and and you also hear it touted as being value neutral so it's like compatible with every religion and stuff and it's really a kind of repackaged and falsified version of Buddhism it's kind of like to Buddhism what Taco Bell is to actual Mexican food. (laughs) A woman who has a background in philosophy and also was raised a Buddhist has a very interesting critique of mindfulness from that perspective, including information about how it falsifies Buddhism Mm. and uh, or runs the risk of that. So if you're interested in a thoughtful critique of mindfulness coming from someone who's not just a fundamentalist Christian or whatever, check this out. All right. So uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask Jimmy what next our next uh, topic is going to be next time. But first, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including this week, Christian E., Michael B., Simon M., Father Eric, and Kathy L. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give 
make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows we do at StarQuest, you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, what's our episode going to be about next week? So next week is a Fifth Friday, so that means we're going to do Fifth Friday weird questions. We're going to be looking at issues like time travel to prevent crime. Uh, Do viruses have souls? What about the Illuminati and Leviathans? And then the following week, we're going to be talking about the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. (laughs) That is like a Doctor Who episode title. (laughs) Yeah. Excellent. So that's it from us. So what do you think of the Knights Templar and the theories about them and what Jimmy had to say about it? Let us know. You can go to sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. Leave feedback there or send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Or you can send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Be sure to check out our Mysterious World bookstore at mysteriousworldstore.com for links to all the books and the videos and all the other things that uh, Jimmy mentions in the show that uh, you could purchase if you're interested in, in going deeper into these subjects. And if you buy the books through those links, that helps support the show and keeps us going. So we really do appreciate that. You can find links to all of Jimmy's resources and the other links that he mentioned in this show and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>